Welcome to If You've Come This Far. Uh, this is Chris. I'm here with my partner, Sean, for our podcast in which we try to have authentic conversations with interesting people who are trying to make more uh, from their time on this planet um, and leave it better than they found it. And uh, I think uh, this episode marks the first time where we've interviewed a stand-up comedian. Is that right, Sean? Well, I mean, Kareth, she was doing stand-up comedy. Now she's the CEO of Inversity, which is her, which is her new company. But uh, yeah, well, you think you're a comedian, but first of all, I'm not trying to minimize what, what Kara is doing yeah. with her life because she's fascinating and she's funny, by the way. Yes, she um, is. I just thought, well, yeah, I was trying to be funny. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> no, so Kareth, um, so where do we find Kareth? There's an article on Kareth in the New York Times uh, about the work that she's doing with Inversity, which is... I'm just going to call it DEI consulting. Um, and so she's working with corporations in a very kind of uh, maybe unorthodox way. And there was two things about her that that I found interesting. One is, as you say, she's she's approaching this. Uh, there's an underlying aspect of humor in, in the way that she's approaching this um, work, which is not unlike what we've seen from some other people, right? From Sherm and um, from Man Therapy. Um, using humor to focus on on really important and maybe at times very difficult subjects. Um, but her also her perspective that you can't do this work without everybody involved. And I think there's an aspect that goes on that, well, the white guys don't need to be involved because they're the ones that that mess it all up. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and she's like, no, you can't do it without everybody involved. And that was really interesting. So yeah, so I sent her a note and she agreed to come chat with us and she's delightful. Yeah, she is delightful. Yeah, the, the name of her shop, Inversity, I think the way she describes it is diversity without the division. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense of, you know, we're talking about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think her premise is that a lot of times we're trying to address those challenges in a non-inclusive way which is completely sort of antithetical to what we're we say we're trying to solve so she does come at it with this you know the little certainly a little bit of humor a lot of humanity and a lot of inclusion i like like we said on the, on our conversation with her it's like it's 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 not traditional it's not orthodox as you put it um and um i suspect she's probably getting some traction and making some some headway with her clients it seems that way. And, you know, it's interesting the, the the listener will hear the story. I mean, we, we were kind of blown away when she talked, told us that she worked for Don Imus um, and that, that whole experience, that's uh, yikes. That, that was really, that was really interesting. And obviously in, in, in a big way informed kind of how she's gone about doing this work and starting this business and very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely some someone who I think that we're we would like to stay in touch with and 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 partner with and, and work with um, and maybe talk with again because she's just she's just fun. It's good energy. Yeah. 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 Here we go. Good morning. Hey Kara. You'll have to forgive me. I'm normally on early. Hold on. My camera should be on. And my mouse decided to we had a terrible storm last night here in Dallas. And um, so we shut everything down. So, you know, nothing would happen, even though we have storage protectors, it's, it can get wild. And I went to start everything and it wouldn't like cooperate. And then my mouse wouldn't work and I couldn't log in. So forgive my tardiness. But, you're, but, you're, but you no, said you're early. you're early. You're actually early. Well, I always tell my children, if you're on time, you're late. Yeah. You're early, you're on time. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. I'm, and you grew up, I know this about you because we, we do a little bit of research. You grew up okay. the daughter of a, you're a military brat, right? Well, yeah. So my dad was in the Air Force. Yeah. So I, so, when he, he was out by the time I was born. Okay. There is definitely some of that order in our house. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get that. I was in the Navy. So um, it was pounded into me too. Although I think it came from before then. So um, well, I'm glad that everything is safe in Dallas. That you're... Yeah, no, fortunately, I mean, we had the sirens go off, which of course always alarms the children a little bit, but 
it worked out. Thank goodness. I haven't turned on the news this morning. So, you know, I just know our house and our neighbor's house are okay. <laughs> how, old are you, how old are you kids? I have two girls. They're uh, almost nine and 10. Mm. So back to back. It was back like twins, back. but like two pregnancies. Yeah. Um, are they, are they close to two of them? They are. They are. They're, they're each other's best friends and worst enemy, but more best friends. I have two yeah. daughters too. So I, do you, it's, it's how old are they? Uh, one just graduated from high school. The other graduated from eighth grade. So they're a little okay. further apart than your daughters, but, um, but it's been really fun to watch them, their relationships sort of, and you're right. Sometimes it's like, let's separate them widely. Uh, and yeah. other times yeah. it's like you can't you yes. can't separate them so and they're still very different personalities you know because it's like wait how did you come from the same sperm and egg and right. you're so completely different people totally. so i have two daughters and two daughters and a son too my daughters are 20 months apart okay uh, yeah 20, 28 and 27 and and yeah i would say most of their life they were not very connected and now as they've gotten older they're they're yeah. very much so that's yeah. great yeah that's so great so yes. you, got, you had three because you just had to be outnumbered, didn't you? Well, my wife's like, no, we got it. You want a boy, don't you? I'm like, I'm, I'm totally fine with anything you want to do. And But then Jack took a while. So he took like four years. So yeah. two years well, and then four. Yeah. We were talking about that. You know, that that discussion, I, I think it's finally off the table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but my husband was definitely hoping for a boy at some point. But he's he's good. He coaches basketball. He you know, he does his stuff. So I, I think we're okay. Girls are great. And, you know, I'm fine. So, oh, me too. So thanks for coming. In, thanks for coming and hang with us. Um, you know, I mean, I reached out after seeing the Times article. Uh, it was great. It's, you know, given um, what we do at Men Living, I think it was really good for us to kind of have a discussion about DEI or DEB or however we want to describe it. And so, um you in particular, after reading that article, I thought would be the best person to come hang with us about it. Um, one, as Chris is going to tell you, we've, we've had um, three or four different conversations about people that are using humor to talk about serious issues, um, men's mental health, um, substance abuse, uh, um, what else, Psych Chris? Psycho um, well, my friend, psychotherapist. Psychotherapy. Humor in psychotherapy, right? Yeah. So so talking about this, and then the other thing is, I think what, what really resonated with me is how you talk about, um, you know, you can't leave the guys out of this conversation, particularly the, the white guys. I mean, you got to kind of include them in this conversation if it's really going to be a thing. So um, so we're really happy that you you decided to come in and talk with us. My pleasure. Absolutely. I'm glad you reached out. Um, I love I, I love what I do and I love having these conversations. Kareth, my wife uh, has co-founded a couple of nonprofits, one of which is centered around DEI work. And so uh -huh. You know, DEI is the, the whole, that area of work is is so nascent. It's it's almost seems absurd to refer to anything traditional about it because it's so new. But I think that they're probably more traditional, certainly, than you are. Um, and so I, you know, I can't wait to talk to you about inversity and 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 maybe, uh, Sean, you were going to start. So I should, I should shut up so you can. No, I think it's just really interesting. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about you at the opening, kind of your background, but um how you got into this, it's a little non-traditional, right? Completely. I mean, you weren't in there's, HR there's or anything like that. So, uh, there's been nothing traditional about my life path or course. Yeah. So maybe start, cool. maybe start there. Okay. So, so maybe start with how you, because I, I mean, we know this, at least I'm going to say the story about I'm just calling you in on, right, right. on this, the controversy around the, the Rutgers women's hoop team kind of started it for you, right? Is that accurate? Well, that was the catalyst for me delving into the diversity aspect of things. I mean, my entire life, and I can, you know, go back is, you know, I, I just knew I wanted to bring people together. I wanted to create um, connection. And so I thought, you know, I would do that via the media. Like that's, what I got my degree in, I was going to be the next Connie Chung, the next Oprah Winfrey, mm -hmm. like Katie Couric. That was because these were the people that had the voice that brought people in and captivated them and got their attention and shared information, pertinent information for 
And then I got into it. Well, we can talk about that, but yeah. that was, that was, and then it was like, it was quick kind of spiral of, oh, wait a second. There, you don't get to tell the whole truth. <laughs> uh, you have such a, such a neat background, Kareth. Um, and so we're going to run out of time. I'll just warn you right now, because um, I'm not going to get to ask you everything I want to ask you, but um but but you so you talk about going to school. So you grew up in Texas, I think, mm-hmm. right? You went to school to study journalism. Um, how many journalist bachelor's degree earners go on the stage to be stand-up comics? Not as many as there are teachers. And yeah, <laughs> probably me. Well, I, I I there have to be other people, but what's fascinating is it's lawyers and teachers who end up going oh, into stand-up. I can't hmm. tell you how many friends I, I mean. Harvard Law degree earners that became stand-up comedians. Hmm. I had no idea. And a lot of teachers, a lot. So there's some, and I feel like what I do is teaching anyway. So, and I'm, I mean, if I had legitimately gone into education, I'd be fourth generation teacher uh, on my mom's yeah. side. So it's kind of in my blood. We haven't started started yet, have we? Or have we started? <laughs> oh yeah, we start right. We start right from the beginning. So oh, game yeah. on. So then, okay. Yeah. yeah. I just so we just to be like three, we just, two, one. We just roll. No, we just <laughs> I love we, how you just guys roll. roll. Kath, we are no, we are rank amateurs. Yeah. We, no we just roll. No false. Yeah. Right. <laughs> We're in it to win it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So my background is I did go to school for journalism. I went to a small women's college in Columbia, Missouri. Um, I studied abroad at Oxford. I you know worked for a small ABC affiliate actually W. Um, KMIZ, excuse me, KMIZ. And actually, one of my coworkers was Savannah Guthrie of the Today Show. Oh, Is that yeah. right? Yeah, we knew each other way back when. And so I I, I, I left there, graduated, went to New York City because I got a job at The View because it was one of those who better than Barbara Walters. Right. Right, to, to have yeah. as a boss. And so I um, was at a national network level and I got to see behind the scenes. And again, there was something that was like, something's just not right here. Like, I wanted to be this beacon of light and truth. And when I got there, I'm like, oh, you only get to say what the sponsors allow, what the network's okay. Um, yeah. You don't really get to tell the whole version of the truth. But then I found stand-up or stand-up found me. And I was like, this is where I can do this. I can tell the truth. I can be funny. I don't have to pretend I'm somebody else. I can be myself and I can reach a wide range of people and I can bring them together, which was always the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of became my outlet, right? My creative outlet, um, almost like a spiritual outlet too. And I started pursuing that. And at one point, my mom was like, please get health insurance. So <laughs> I started temping at Estee Lauder in their corporate headquarters in HR. I just happened to land in HR. I was essentially the second assistant to the senior VP of global HR. Mm. So all the presidents of the companies, all the vice presidents, so that's who I interacted with mostly. And that's where I got to tell you, I learned a really critical life lesson. The people who are in those high up positions and the people who are like kind of the the plebes, right? Those are the coolest. It's the people in middle management that are kind of the a-holes. Oh, yeah. They're the ones that yeah. hold things up. Yeah. And I don't know if it's their insecurity, if they're, you know, just, I, I don't know what it is, but that was always where the problem was. And I even find that in the work that I do now, you know, I, the CEOs, we are on the same page. We are out there to make it happen, to learn, to grow. And it's not that all middle management, like I, I don't want to make sure. you know, that statement so hyperbole, but it's, it's just very interesting that people that get stuck and stay in those positions tend to have a very limited view of what mm-hmm. can be. And so that was valuable. Um, so you I, have to have a theory. You you must have a theory on why that is, though. I mean, is it do you do you think it's insecurity? Do you I think, think it's, it's mindset. Okay? Honestly, I yeah. think it's mindset. Yeah. And it's fear. Like everything, everything that ruins stuff is based on fear. Right. And fear is based on survival. Am I going to survive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and do they see and do they see the pro- possibility or probability of moving from middle management up? Because in the end, it's kind of about, I mean, I always looked at it from the perspective of I'm there to develop the people below me so that they're, so that they're going to do better, whatever right. that means. But there are some people uh, that are like, well, what if I, if they do better than me? Yeah. Right? And right. I think that's the whole conversation around diversity and inclusion, right? Like that's why people can't fully enroll in that because, well, if I help them, who's going to help me? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, am I going to get screwed? 
Right. And the reality is if it's done well, right, it's everybody wins. But it's this, 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 again, this mindset of scarcity, of lack of abundance, of there's only enough to go around. And, and that's where I think, you know, people get caught up and then we, we don't advance and then we get scared and we get upset that so-and-so is getting a job or we're recruiting for different types of people or, you know, and I, and I, I understand where that comes from. And I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to feel that way, but the idea is, you know, if we really are sincere about making better environments for each other, we also have to understand that you know, there have been things that have been put in place that have kept women, that have kept certain people of color down for, for decades. Yeah. Now, is it your fault that that was put in place before you had any kind of control? Absolutely not. Nor should you be blamed for that. However, where we are now is in a place where we can make a correction, right? Not an overcorrection, a correction. So mm-hmm. that it's an equal playing field. Yeah, you I were... don't think that's the approach that everybody's taking. I yeah. don't think so either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been party to a lot of this type of work. But like, so so going back real quickly, Estee Lauder, you were in your 20s at that time? I was in my 20s. Yeah, I was in my 20s, 20s into like almost 30s. And then I got, I, I left to start a production company that lasted about 20 minutes. And I get a call from an old booker from a show that I killed it at like years before. He never called me again. I was like, that's weird. And he's like, hey, you interested in a radio TV job? I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, by the way, it's with Imus. And I go, Don Don Imus? Like, nappy-headed hose, Don Imus? He's like, yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? And the thing was, I will never forget when it, like, broke on the news. Like, it was the perfect combination, right? Old, rich, white guy saying something completely inappropriate. Slow news day, mm-hmm. right? Caught like wildfire. Mm-hmm. And so... I just remember thinking, oh man, I should have been there with him because I saw it from multiple angles. I saw it from him being a comedian, him riffing, him trying to like do Mm -hmm. something off the cuff. And people do not understand how hard it is to be a comedian. Like they don't know, like when you get to like Dave Chappelle level, when you've got your Netflix special, like you have done that material 50 to a hundred times, at least you've vetted it. You know, you've watched yourself, you you know, now there are some people like Matt Reif who's coming out, who's friggin' amazing, who does great audience work, right? He just has that natural talent and ability. Not everybody has that. Or you have it, sometimes it's on, sometimes it's off. So what he was doing was trying to be funny off the cuff. And obviously it didn't land well, right? Um, And then I saw it, of course, you know, from the perspective of a Black woman, which was like, I can't believe you just said that. That was so not okay. Um, but it was the idea of if I'd been there, we could have had a conversation about it. Right. Because he had no clue what he said. He, I mean, were those his words? They were, was he parroting his producer, by the way, Bernie McGurk, you know, rest in peace, Bernie. Um, he was, but there was nobody there to say, look, this is why this could be construed this way. I know what you were Mm -hmm. trying to do, what your intention was, but this is why it didn't go over well. And then of course, because he wasn't a complete monster, when he realized the backlash that happened, and it was unfortunate because there are people out there that are jerks and people would show up to the Rutgers women's basketball team games with shirts and with signs and Mm. just perpetuating the nastiness. And that wasn't necessary. And so when he realized that that happened, he was very contrite in his apology. And I, you know, I I believe that I did. I sincerely Mm. believe that. And so when I got brought on it was to have a national dialogue about race and racism in america you know no small feat for one show let alone one person but it did make me delve into wait a second if we've been doing diversity like having diversity efforts programs you know these motions for at that point it was like 50 60 decades why was it feeling like it was two steps forward 10 steps back mm-hmm. yeah and that's what really kind of was the catalyst for me to to get into this space to be like, how can I make it better? So, so, so this is not important for most people. I'm just uptight. Um, but you went from Estee Lauder. Wait, the View was after Estee Lauder, or no? The View was before. Okay, yeah. it was when it was a startup show. Oh, okay, okay. And then Estee Lauder was. Are you do, are you interviewing her for a job? I mean, well, you got to no, go through the whole resume. No, but uh, like I feel like the, our our trajectory in life and in career and in vocation 
is there's meaning behind that, right? Okay. So, All right. so, so <laughs> we actually like each other, Kareth, believe it or not. I believe you. Right? I believe you. Love each other. We love each other. We love each yeah. other. Um, yeah. But so you went straight from SLR when you got this call to be on IMS. And by the way, I'm going to be really vulnerable. I, I mentioned I was in the Navy. I was in stationed in Mystic, Connecticut or Groton, Connecticut, New London in the 90s. And I could get New York radio. And I listened to that on whatever station that was in New York. And I was a fan. I um, Even of Bernie McGurk, which is a name I haven't heard in Yeah, Bernie was decades. a sweetheart. Bernie was, Bernie was a good old boy from the Bronx. He was a good old Irish boy from the Bronx. You know, Bernie, what you saw was what you got. And he he really had a heart of gold. He did. And and, and they talked about some important things on that show. Um, yeah. Back in the day. But but you but that that was um you taking that job at that time i mean i your mom had just scolded you about not having health insurance what did she say when you took this job she didn't want me to do it she mm-hmm. she really was concerned for my for my safety for my yeah. mental safety my physical safety because you know here i'm joining forces with one of the most reviled men in history you know in the media and I, but I, I did it. I'll tell you why I did it because I remember thinking, if I don't do this, somebody else will, and they won't be as responsible with the position. Mm-hmm. And here's my chance to be the anti-stereotype of how we typically see black women in the media, mm-hmm. you know, because at the time Oprah didn't have her daily show anymore. She hadn't even started the, her network. Right. There was no Shonda Rhimes. There was no Carrie Washington or Viola Davis. Like it was all just like, you know, stereotypes and, you know, people rolling their necks and talking about baby daddies. It was just, and that was so like, that's fine. Like have that faction, but that's not all of who black America is. Yeah, and I yeah. thought, you know, my parents raised me to be a certain way. They they taught me to be proud of who I am and my background and my heritage. And I think everybody should be allowed to do that. I mean, the idea isn't that you're any better than anybody else, right? The idea is to own who you are. And so when I had this opportunity, I was terrified. And my mom was terrified, which didn't make it any better. But my dad and I, we come from the, we're cut from the same cloth. Cause he's like, if you don't do this, you're going to wonder what if. Yeah. And to me, that's hell on earth. Like to me, that's yeah. just complete purgatory. Like if I don't mm-hmm. do this, what could have been? So I said, yes. And that job kind of became my tale of two cities. I, I jokingly say that because it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was killer job i mean four hours a day on the air (laughs) getting to be smart and funny and talk news and politics like everything i'd gone to school for but i was with a very damaged person and you know it's no secret imus was an alcoholic and a drug addict Mm -hmm. and even though he wasn't drinking or taking drugs when i was with him he never sought recovery so he never did 12 steps he just stopped drinking and taking drugs so he was still manic and he Mm -hmm. never addressed whatever the root cause was for the alcoholism, for the drug addiction. So you never knew who you were going to get. And on a daily basis, it was, are we getting the creative genius, the Marconi award winning, you know, just phenomenal, or are we going to get a 14 year old bipolar boy? And there was no HR, you know, there was just no HR and it sucked. And I know I'm not the only person who's been in this situation, um, you know, there are people who deal with that on a daily basis, whether they're working at a law firm or, you know, it's janitorial and they've got a boss that like pulls all the strings and controls everything. And you're kind of, you know, captive there. Yeah. Yeah. Kareth, what, um, it's funny because I was thinking about Imus from back in his pure radio days. You were on TV, though, right? Was yeah, that- we had, yeah. Yeah. We were radio and yeah. TV. So okay. um, it was before he went to Fox Business News, but we were on something called RFD TV in the very okay. beginning. And, and and so, and this is back to my line of questioning, Sean, uh, around how we sort of like figure out our way through life. Yeah. But like, Kareth, obviously that experience didn't go exactly how you wanted it to go, but it sounds like it did inform what you did next pretty heavily. Is Can you, is that true? Absolutely. And can you speak to that? It, it did. I mean, I, I had to recover after that job. Like, I, I'm mm. not going to lie. I had a little PTSD from that. Um, I never, excuse me, I'd I'd never been in an abusive situation before. I wasn't raised in one. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate. You know, my parents this year will be married 56 years. Mm. Um, You know, they argued, but it was never, you know, cursing or there was no hitting. There was no alcoholism. Like, so I just, it was brand new 
for me mm. that experience. And I, I, I was in shock and I just had to, you know, when you are being told and berated like every single day, it, it got to the point where fans of the show were like, is he really being that mean to you? Uh, Cause it's not funny anymore. And yeah. what they heard was only like 10% of what was happening off the air. Like he was trying to get me to quit because he knew he couldn't fire the black girl that he brought on to help save his ass. Uh-huh. So, and I how soon, how soon after you got there was he trying, was, was that? Uh, well, I saw who he was about six weeks in. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is, it's like when you're on a date with somebody and they're really rude to the waiter. Ah, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. flag. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saw him make grown men cry. Like he was that vicious and vile. Um, and again, you know, I, I have, I have sympathy for him. You know, he mm -hmm. was, he was damaged. Yeah. And, but the problem was I took it personally. Like I thought it was me. What am I not doing to show up enough so that he, you know what I mean? And that like, that's such yeah. an abusive situation, right? Where you're yeah. like, it's me. I'm the problem. Oh, sure. Taylor Swift. It's, I'm the problem. It's me. But I, I, it took leaving to realize, okay, wait a second. That was him. He, he had issues, not yeah. me. So I had to kind of get myself back. So I moved out to California because um, I wasn't able to do stand up anymore. So I didn't have that outlet because we have to be up at four in the morning to be on the air for six. You can't stay out all night at the comedy clubs. Right. right. So my connection to my friends, my people, you know, that world kind of dissipated. Um, but I knew I wanted to get back into, um, you know, I wanted to get back into stand up. I wanted to I wanted to do something that allowed me to be creative again. And one of the things that ended up happening was I'm like, well, because my confidence was shot after being told I was stupid and not funny and, sure. you know, everything for like two years, two and a half wow. years. Um, I said, well, speaking, let me go into speaking. And because I still want to make the world a better place. And not long after I missed, there was another incident involving a young man by the name of Tyler Clement. And I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he was a Rutgers University, coincidentally, Rutgers, again, yeah. student who jumped off the George Washington Bridge. He took his life yeah. after he was outed by his roommate and some fellow peers. Yeah, I remember that. I yeah. That story broke my heart. And I remember thinking, mm -hmm. nobody should feel that alone for whatever it is that they think makes them an outlier, whether it's their socioeconomic status, their sexuality, you know, their ethnicity, their, like any of it, like we're really in this together. It's it's not, I hate the term when we say it's different races of people. It's a human race. Right. Is that the point in your life where it was starting to like when sort of maybe, it sounds like you already had ideas on vocation, like what you, what mark you wanted to leave in, on the place. I did. I did. But like, <laughs> when, like, so, but I guess the, 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 the which acronym are we going to use? Um, D, D, uh, D, E, I, D, E, I, D, <laughs> D and I, diversity. I don't, you know what? I, it's, it's all getting so complex. Now people are saying Jedi, right? Justice, equity, diversion, inclusion. Like, oh, wow. It's all over the place, right? As wow. you just said, it's very, um, it, 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 it's, it's new. Yeah. In some respects, it's new. It's been yeah. happening for a long time, but it's also new. I, I think there's been a resurgence because of, you know, obviously like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, just 2020. Um, and so it, it certainly has brought new people into the conversation. Um, you know, and there was this mad rush for companies to get chief diversity officers and to have diversity councils and you know, and whether it was because, you know, we don't want to be left out or we want to, you know, um, do the right thing now, uh, who knows what everybody's impetus was for it. Um, but I do think that a lot of people weren't ready. Yeah. They weren't ready. And that's yeah. why we see the backlash now. And they weren't ready for multiple reasons. One is that, you know, again, if it was for optics, right, well, we don't want our company to look bad. Yeah. Then they just put somebody in position and oftentimes they just pick the black guy from HR or the Asian lady or the Hispanic woman or the gay person. And, and it's like, these people have no background right. in diversity work. They just happen to be of a marginalized group. Right. Right. right? Yeah. And then yeah. if you do that, you got to support them. But they, these people got thrown into the deep end of the pool mm -hmm. with a nice six figure salary. Who's going to turn that down? Right. And, and an impossible and, job. And an impossible right. job. And then people right. are like, well, it's not working. It's not working. 
Well, did you set it up for success? Yeah. I mean, arguably, arguably set it up for success. Did you even set it up with an objective? Was there even a was there even a concrete objective for some of these programs beyond just to your point of optics, maybe? Um, it was reactive. It was reactive yeah. instead of proactive. Yeah. Well, we were we were we've all been sort of lemmings in this whole thing, right? Oh, everyone else is hiring a chief DEI officer. We should do that. We can check the box. We can make sure at least we're doing what everyone else is doing. But um, but so you you started to see an opportunity given your gifts and what you cared about to contribute to this space. Um, what time frame is that? And and how did that? How did you get? How did you get started with inversity? And it was actually not originally called inversity. Is that correct? It wasn't. It was called stereotyped one hundred and one. I love that you did your reconnaissance. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so after I left IMS, just to backtrack real quick and, and being, you know, kind of berated for things, I remember thinking, because one of the things he wanted me to do was do voices that to me kind of sounded like step and fetch it. I don't know if you get that reference. Yes. Right. Yes. Like step and fetch it was like an old time, you know, yes, sir. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, the oh, dancing yeah. kind of black person. And I'm like, I'm not doing that shit. Excuse me. I don't yeah. mean to curse, but Okay, yeah. that's not who I am, and that's not what I do, and I'm not comfortable with it, and I think it's doing a disservice. And because I wouldn't do that, he got very angry with me, and that's when it kind of started, because I wouldn't be the voice he couldn't be. So I just remember thinking after I left, I am going to do something with humor and comedy, but I'm only going to use it for good. Oh, I'm yeah. only going to use it for good. Not to make fun of people, not to... And when I do my comedy, yeah, I, it's you know it's humor that's about being a little self-deprecating. And if you talk about other ethnicities and things, it's, but it's like a universal thing. It's not to just be a, it's not to be mean, right? And you, you, it's kind of everybody's fair game. That's what comedy is, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, but I thought if I can use humor, which is such a, a, a tool, an amazing tool to bring people together, to create a space where, certain neurons are firing because you're having an actual physiological response, right? The dopamine, the serotonin. Um, and when that happens, especially for uncomfortable conversations, which a lot of diversity work can be, um, you're, you're creating this neutral space for people to not be on the offense, to not be on the defense, to just be open to like having a mind shift, having an epiphany, having a, oh gosh, you know what? I didn't see it that way before. I never like that never occurred to me. And mm -hmm. and that's I think why my approach is so successful because I don't go in guns a blazing, you mm -hmm. know, oh you're you're wrong. You're 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 never gonna know what it's like to be a trans person. You're never gonna know what it's like to be a black woman. Like, no, you're not. But are you should you be punished for that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. It takes me, <laughs> it makes me think of a book I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with called White Fragility. Oh. by Rob, Robin D'Angelo, yes. which was was a little bit like that. And and Sean mentioned earlier that people in other parts of sort of like self-care slash mental wellness that we've spoken to use humor as a way to humanize things and disarm people because I feel like a lot of this work requires conversation, requires vulnerability. And if you don't disarm people, you're never going to get to that conversation um is, is sort of my experience with the whole thing but like so stereotyping 101 can we go back to that because that's yeah, the yeah. that's the genesis well, well wait before you go back because Kareth, you had a response to to chris's bringing up that book you, <laughs> i had a visceral response yes you did yes you did do you do you care to expound on that i think at all? that people like um robin d'angelo abraham x kendi i think that you know, not everything they do is horrible, but I think they do a disservice to the conversation around what diversity can be, what inclusion should be. Um, and, you know, at least, you know, Robin, she owns, look, I'm racist. Okay, fine. Then you be racist in your world, but don't put that label on everybody else just yeah. because they happen to be white. Right. You know, I, you know, I have godparents that are white. I'm married to a white guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of my best friends are white. <laughs> you have, you have white friends? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just, and I just, I think everybody has bias, right? Everybody has yeah, unconscious sure. bias. Some people have very conscious bias. Right. Um, but the idea to give that label, and now it's, it's just become such a, a blanket, blatant term 
that is, I don't think always appropriate. And I, and I think that it, again, it's just such a disservice to helping move the conversation forward. Thanks for listening to If You've Come This Far. This episode is brought to you by Judson and Moore, Chicago distillers of American whiskey. They're distilling, barreling, and bottling right here in the Avondale neighborhood on the west bank of the Chicago River, and they're already winning awards for their bourbon, rye, and single malt whiskeys. I personally recommend trying them all, either straight or in their delicious cocktails with some of the great live music acts that come to play in the bar. Check them out at judsonandmore.com. Now back to the show. It's funny because, well, it's funny. Uh, that was a, a, an unintended pun, but like, I, I suspect that you even named the original creation as stereotyping one-on-one with humor, right? Like, because one-on-one usually implies how-to. Well, it was initially for colleges and universities because of the Tyler Clemente scenario. Oh, okay. ah, like, how do I reach ah. these poor kids that are in colleges and universities thinking that something's wrong with them? thinking that they're different from each other or they're different from the outside world. What can I do? And that was my initial target audience was colleges and universities. And so that's why it was called Stereotyped 101. Mm. Okay. And then I realized that people are like, well, do you have this for corporations too? I'm like, well, yeah, of course it would make sense. (laughs) We could evolve. Now here's what's fascinating. Um, while there are many schools who still want to bring me in, I've been blackballed, no pun intended, from a couple of schools because I don't tout a certain narrative. Um, uh-huh. I'm in line with a lot of the CRT modalities and narratives. Um, I'm not on the quote unquote woke side of things. Um, I want people to be awakened, but I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to the extremist way of doing diversity. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's healthy and it's not helpful mm-hmm. and it actually perpetuates the problem. I, I agree. I mean, just real, just to get this in real quick, I don't know if the governor has signed it yet, but in the state that you live, um, they're going to block all public funding, right. For colleges and universities uh, for DEI programs. Is that right? I mean, in the Texas, legislature, I know yeah, the legislature, the legislature passed it, and I think it was going to Abbott's desk for for signature. And this so, is what you get for people doing it so piss poorly. Yeah, this is what because ha- it's not that diversity is a bad thing. Like it, we, it's not a bad thing. Like we need people to be able to celebrate who they are. We need people to be able to bring different ideas and 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 thoughts to their. You know we. Again, I have so many issues with the way diversity has been done. And one of them is thinking that it's a two-way street, right? That it's solely about gender, mm-hmm. sexuality, and ethnicity. And the other is that thinking that if we do diversity well, if it's successful, then at the end, everybody's on the same page and everybody agrees. <clears throat> That's the antithesis of true diversity. <laughs> right. Right? right? I mean, diversity right. should be expounded to include diversity of thought, diversity of ideas. You know, neurodiversity now is part of the conversation, finally. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many things, people's ability, physical, and like there's so much that really, but because the word diversity has been hijacked, right, to mean just those few things, that's the focus of so many people. And so part of why I chose the word inversity, which I created, because I'm like, even the root of the word diversity, D-I-V, think of all the words that start with that, right? Division, divide, divorce. And we're shocked diversity isn't working. So inversity is pulling out what's supposed to be the good part of that, right? Again, the acknowledging of who we are, our identity, not forcing it on anybody, just letting people be who they are, right? And that doesn't mean that you have to be like them <laughs> yeah. and, and, and focusing on what is it we have in common? How can we be truly inclusive of one another, but most importantly, and powerfully introspective, understanding your value and worth so you can see it in someone else. And I don't think that has had any part of the diversity conversation thus far. It's always been this outside in, you know, you got to change the way you think, you got to right. change what you do, you got to, you got to be different. Okay. Wait a second. Stop. Hold the phone. People should be allowed to maintain their belief systems. This isn't about your belief system. This is about behavior. And how do we create a space where we treat other everyone as valuable, as worthy human beings? 
Well, and, and so I want both of you to react to to my thought on this. So as I was thinking about our conversation coming up today, you know, just thinking about the programs and and we can either take it from a corporate perspective or university. I, I don't I don't really think it's a very different. But, you know, in the end, if we're implementing a program in a in a business, it's to a particular end, right? If I if I'm going to implement a program, I want it to strengthen the business, grow the revenue, right, right, or right. or increase the bottom line. So when I think about when I think about these programs, DEI programs, how, how, rarely do I ever see us talking about how is it helping us achieve the corporation's end game or the university's end game. Um, do you do you experience that as you're you know. Particularly when you're talking with the CEO, I would hope that that conversation is about how does this make my business better rather than just something to do to do it. At a hundred percent. Oh, my goodness. So, oh, great question, Sean. And this is why so many people are saying, well, it's not working. Why are we doing this? Why are we spending so much money on something that, you know, what's what's the result going to be? Well, they don't have that the result in mind. They don't have an end game. They don't have a goal. And that's, again, my take with university is the ultimate goal should be creating a, a place and a space where you have high levels of communication, because that's really what this is about. This right. is about teaching people how to have interactions, relationships, um, being able to you know, use language that everyone can be enrolled in so that and I don't mean like indoctrinated, right? And I'm not mm -hmm. saying you have to say a yeah. certain word or phrase, like, you know, but just giving people that that space to be human, to be fallible, right? To not have to run to HR every time somebody says something that runs rubs you the wrong way. You know, personal responsibility is a big part of this. And I think that is part of what is not coming out of colleges and universities right now. Um, I don't know if you've read the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, it was an Atlantic article that was one of the most popular. And my two friends uh, wrote it, Greg Lukianoff, who's the president and CEO of FIRE, Foundation mm -hmm. for Individual Rights and Expression. I'm on their advisory board. And of course, you know, now pretty famous psychologist, uh, Jonathan Haidt. Sure. Yep. Yep. And they co-authored the book. And it actually just got made into a film that hopefully we'll be finding some distributorship soon. Um, but there is a lot happening on college campuses that are basically telling people they're fragile, mm -hmm. right? And instead mm -hmm. of you know edifying them and building them up and saying, look, you are an adult now, you are a responsible person, you're responsible for yourself. It's done the exact opposite. And of course, these people leave colleges and universities and go into the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, mommy and daddy can't send a note to your boss at your job because somebody said something that you didn't like. Um, and so, you know, what I try to do within my work is empower people to just understand the fact that they exist means they have purpose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, so much of this is really communication. I hate that it even almost sometimes falls under the diversity umbrella. Um, it does because I, I, I talk about it somewhat, but it really is about leadership. It's about development. Yeah. It's about mm -hmm. growth. And again, like what better way to get there than through laughter? Mm -hmm. what um, when you're um, selling to corporations, organizations, I mean, maybe less so schools, I'm more interested in the in the sort of corporate clients, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. is it is it typically workshops? Um, uh, is it day long retreats? Is it mo like how how does it work? And maybe you can describe it for us. Absolutely. And so I offer a variety of options. Uh, from keynotes and workshops to um, like in the workshops can be anywhere from two hours to four hours to two days. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have this fabulous facility that we use down in Austin uh, for, for retreats. Um, and if the company is having a retreat somewhere, going somewhere, I will come in and do things. But one of the things that I think always surprises people is that you know, they think they're going in for a diversity training, but they leave coming out elated. They leave coming out inspired and connected. And I just did a workshop for um, Ivy Tech Colleges that's up in Indiana and Illinois. Yeah. And it was four hours, but it lasted the whole day, essentially. And people were like, it's over. <laughs> like, they mm -hmm. didn't want to leave. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, who who says that after a workshop on diversity? Yeah, which is awesome. So you immediately go to whoever sponsored you and get them to write another check for you to for you to continue. They pretty much do that uh, because they're like, we've never experienced this before, and our people are happy and they're motivated, and that's what this is about. Like, this shouldn't be about you know, the finger in the face and the tongue lashings and the making people feel who gets guilted into doing the right thing. I mean, if anything, what you're doing is you're making people not want to be part of it. Yeah. I, I, my experience has been that um, you typically come out of workshops like that and you're spent and and you're exhausted and you, and maybe there's an added layer of shame that you're walking out with that you didn't even come in with. Um, So the, the, the idea, Sean, you talk about objectives, but the idea about feeling energized and maybe hopeful um, and okay with, with, with where you're coming into things, um, notwithstanding the fact that we all need to improve. um, That sounds really appealing to me. Well, I, and I, I want to go back to, you know, you made a comment about your your time with Imus about, you know, one of the things that you had to do was really hard for you was as you were either there or leaving, recognize that it wasn't about you, that yeah. that, that that the problem was was with him. And so so that level of empathy and, and understanding, I think, is really important. Does it is it within what you're doing now and in, in your teaching? And I mean, are you. As you talk, it's like, hey, you look at yourself, but also you have to have an appreciation for what others are going through and what they've experienced in their life on both sides, right? I mean, on all, on every side, because exactly. as you said, we're the human race. So um, was that really important for you? And then how do you carry that through in what you do in inversity? Oh, my goodness. That's such a great question. So, you know, I said diversity is not a two-way street. It's a six-lane highway. Yeah. And one of those lanes, I, I say, I like to get people to care. I want people to care. Care is an acronym for conscious empathy, right? Not to be confused with sympathy, it's deeper. It's not just putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It's asking those uncomfortable questions. What is it like for them? And how might that feel? What is it like to be somebody like me, who was the only one in my classes, because there weren't a lot of Black people in my you know, right. community, what is it like to be somebody who may have to pray several times a day? What's it like to be a white person who didn't grow up around anybody but white people and now doesn't know the right words to say or questions to ask? You know, what is that like? Active listening is the A, responsible reactions. That's a huge one because we are all wired for survival, right? And we're all wired to be immediately defensive if somebody, if it feels like an attack, a personal attack. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in work, which it may not be, but we take it that way. Mm-hmm. So how do we respond? Do we respond in a way that creates a space for conversation to evolve? Or do we respond in a way that acts as a, you know, just more powder for the powder keg? Mm-hmm. And that often happens. And that's why we're not a lot further along, because we are teaching people how to own what they're feeling about something, process it, take that time, take that breath, right? And then ask a question like, well, why did you say that? Where did that come from? Flip the switch because we don't always know everyone's intention. We don't always know what's on someone's mind or in their heart. We don't know, but we are the stars of our own one person play. So we're only going to take it the way we see it. Mm -hmm. And then the last is environmental awareness. You know, who are you surrounding yourself with? Are you doing anything to step out of your comfort zone and broaden your spectrum of people that you engage with, of people that you talk to, of, you know, your friend circle. I love that. Um, and, and, and I feel like, um, also you have, a, you, because you're in the business of this work and you're having to sell this work, my guess is that you have a unique perspective into the market and the market is those people who are at least thinking about this. Some of whom are thinking about it because they want to check the box or be a B Corp, or do whatever it is. Um, but in any case, you're you're talking to people who are setting out to do something related to social justice, DEI, et cetera. What can you say about what you're hearing from those people that 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 might tell us about people's motivations or people's sort of um, evolution in terms of what are the objectives we should all be working towards? Well, you know, we began this conversation talking about fear. Right. And I think there are a lot of people that are scared right now. They're scared to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing. And then they're scared of doing nothing at all. 
Um, so it's this really wild catch 22 we have ourselves mm. in as a society. And mm. let's be honest, a lot of the CEOs are out there are straight white men who have been told now for decades, you don't get to be part of the conversation because you're not mm. part of a marginalized group, so you don't get it. But they want to do something to help, but they don't feel like they have any part in it. So it's this weird, again, juxtaposition of, and it must be confusing for them to be like, well, how do I make things better? But I'm if I'm part of the problem, how, you know, so it's just this weird. So again, my take is if you, this is a conversation that everybody has to be part of. No ifs, ands, or buts. I'm sorry. Like if you're serious about true inclusion, it, that means everybody. You don't get right. to cherry pick mm-hmm. who gets to have a voice in this. Now, that doesn't yep. mean that you don't pay attention to the marginalized voices, of course. Like, you know, there are oftentimes people who have not had an opportunity to, to be a voice, right? But the idea isn't to do the exact opposite and shut someone down because they don't fit your idea of what diversity means. Like, that, that's insanity. Mm-hmm. And yet it's rampant. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm hearing from a lot of organizations are the people who are sincere that are being proactive about diversity is they want to do it well they want to do it in a healthy way I mean the company that brought me in Woodward is one of those companies like they are 150 years old they've had six CEOs in that 150 years (laughs) okay they are coming from a not super diverse space but they're like we know we want to be like we we want to move forward in the world, but we also want to do it in a way that's not going to land blast the people who we hold valuable, the people that have spent their lives at this organization. And that's the thing. Nobody nobody can help what body they were born into. So this idea of casting blame is, is so asinine because it's not about who you are. It's about your behavior, right? right? And how yeah. you show up. Yeah. And are you doing something to contribute to the world? Are you doing something to hold people back because you're living in a place of fear? Yeah. So I, so I had this discussion this weekend. Um, something that's always been a big question mark in, in my head is um, affinity. I'll call them affinity groups within mm-hmm. corporations. Um, at some level, it always kind of felt like it, it created more divisiveness. But I, I'm, I'm wondering what you two think about it. Um, because because that was my take, but I, other people felt like no, it's really important that people find their find their people and spending time with them is nice. I, I, so I you're you're both smiling at me like I'll be on, I'm torn about it and torn in the sense of like I get it like yes I think yeah. people should be like yeah here's a club for people who have similar things in common, but they need to be very very cautious. That it's not like only people from this group can come in. You know, when I found out there was a campus, this might be why I've been blackballed from some colleges, but there was a campus in a college in California that had a, a, a Blacks only dorm for Black students. Not only was it a mile off a of campus, <laughs> but it was like no white people. And so I'm like, well, what do you do if you're biracial? You're, you're, one of your parents can't come in, mm-hmm. right? Like, what if you have white friends? Like, that's just, to me, it seems like segregation 2.0. Is this where we're really yeah. wanting to go with this? I don't think I would answer it any differently than you, Kareth. I mean, I, I think there is a utility there. I think uh, utility is maybe not a human enough word to use, but I think that 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 there's value in us being able to convene with people that look like us. I mean, I will. I I've even seen white affinity groups, um, which which seems crazy. But but I think it, to your point, Kareth, like as long as we're not being sort of absolute uh, about the way we do them and and it's a little bit like men living too sean as long as there's thoughtful activity within those groups i think that they can they can serve a purpose i was just going to say that i mean i you know i was i was not uh i mean i was kind of resistant to the whole idea of guys just hanging out and just as guys um because I'm like, okay, well, how, how, how does that help anything if we're just going to be in a corner somewhere and talking about our feelings? But, you know, if, if we're, if we're coming together to have like real good conversations that lead us to going back out into the world with a different mindset, then, I mean, that's kind of at the foundation of, of what we're all about. So if we were to lose that, then, then, uh, 
then yeah, I'd have I'd have an issue. But I I think I think we're having our conversations and then going out and trying to make it a better make it all a better place. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kareth, I have to ask you, like you you've established the fact that you have two daughters mm-hmm. and, and you have a husband, and you've don't seem to have slowed down on the professional front at any point in your career. And yet somehow you found time in there to write a book. Um so please reconcile that for me uh, or or say, like, explain your superpower. Um, but also the book itself, you can be perfect uh, or you can be happy. Is that is that tangential or is it related to the rest of the work in your life? It absolutely is related. It's um, it's fascinating because I, I, I initially I didn't see the connection. Um I thought it was a a very separate thing. So I wrote the book just for your, to answer your question, because I know you are very much about information and putting all the pieces together. I actually wrote the book between three and five in the morning on my phone. Wow. For about a month and a half. It was downloads. Like it was complete downloads from source. Like God was like, you got to get this out, girl. And, um, and that's where the majority of the book was written was on my phone at three, between three and five in the morning. Wow. And um, I, I wrote it initially, I, I had the idea for years, but again, you know, raising small children, trying to get a career off the ground, you know, who has the time. Um, but it was just always in the back of my head. And it happened uh, after the birth of my first daughter, I had some problems nursing her and she almost died. And I had a very dear friend who we share a birthday. She's also married to an Australian. And she came up to just love on me. And she's like, look, Kareth, you can be happy or you can be perfect. I choose happy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, a chorus of angels should have started singing. The heavens should have opened up. It was just <laughs> like, hey, that was a nice thing my friend said. But it stuck with me for years. I juxtaposed it. You know, you can be perfect or you can be happy. And I realized, you know, how much of my life I'd spent trying to be perfect, mm. perfect friend, the perfect student, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect, you know, employee, the perfect whatever. And I'm like, if I'm doing this, there's got to be other people that are doing this too. Mm-hmm. And what is it costing me? And I realized it was costing me time. It was certainly costing money in some instances. It was costing me joy and peace and happiness and the reality is there's no spoiler alert for the book. There's no such thing as perfect. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. And it's sad that that's what we strive for so much in ourselves. And this is where it kind of crosses over into the diversity conversation. You know, even if we know we're not perfect, we still want other people to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And when they're not, it it triggers something sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea of, you know, perfection isn't real. Strive for excellence. Absolutely. Strive mm-hmm. for excellence. But understand that it doesn't have to be perfect for it to be good, for it to make for it to work, for it to be done. And then the happiness side is happiness is a choice, right? We get to choose whether or not. Now it's as individual as we are, what makes me happy isn't going to make you happy. And what made me happy five years ago isn't going to make me happy today. But there's a caveat also to this happiness thing. And that's is that's that it's 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 not a constant. And I think in especially Western society, we think we're supposed to be happy all the time. I mean, you turn on the TV, you're depressed. Here's a drug for that. Something's going wrong. You know, go on this vacation. You know, like this idea that we're supposed to be happy all the time is so toxic. Like it is okay to not want to get out of bed for a day or a weekend. Three weeks, you should talk to someone. (laughs) Right. But like this idea that we're supposed to be on, it just... I think it's so damaging, especially to our young people. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. I mean, no one needs that that lesson that perfection is is a farce. Like um, more than your daughters and my daughters, and 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 even Sean's uh, grown kids. Um, but but like the young people, especially with social media, all they see is this perfection or this picture of perfection from everyone posting their shit. And uh, it's it's like it's the source, I think, of a lot of mental health issues without question. Well, Jonathan Haidt just wrote wrote a paper about it. I mean, um, about social media being con- I, he he looks at it as as a main cause of particularly young girls, teenage girls. So so we've got we've got our work cut out for us. But um, 
Um, but I'm sure you, you and your husband are wonderful parents. Um, but parenting's fucking hard too. Sorry. Oh my God. <laughs> the hardest job I've ever had. And I've had a lot of jobs. <laughs> yeah. Par- parenting makes stand-up comedy look like a uh, cakewalk, right? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Oh my word. It's so funny. My kids, and they're so funny, but they'll say so. Like there's this book out there. I'll never forget. I was pregnant and I was pregnant and I was like trying to just, you know, speed read through everything to prep. And uh, there was a book called Toddlers Are Assholes. And I remember thinking, what horrible person would write that about God's gift? (laughs) And then I had toddlers and I'm like, teach me, sensei. Like, you knew what you were talking about. (laughs) And it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop. The other day, I'm like running around. I'm in my office. I'm running downstairs. I happen to not have a bra on. And my older daughter goes, mom, why were you clapping? What? <laughs> You're adopted, okay? You're adopted. <laughs> um, yeah, well, stand by and I'll send you a picture uh, or a copy of my newest book called Teenagers Are Assholes. So, awesome. Uh, yeah, awesome. every step of the way i don't know um, why we expect we we expect that we're animals right even though we've got you know this consciousness we in the end we're animals so the fact that we think we can manage all this stuff well my right? we're kidding we're kidding ourselves <laughs> that's the that's the journey though right like we're, we, we yes. do our best to figure this stuff out kareth uh, we ask three questions <laughs> of our guests at the end of every episode they're sort of canned can that's sort of you None sort of can. They're super canned, but they're ours. Yes. They're ours. Right. They're yours. You've owned yes, them. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're game, we can knock yeah. those out. Okay. Um, first question is, what do you wish you could have told your 10-year-old self? Oh, don't worry so much, sweetheart. It mm. always works out. Don't worry. Mm. That's beautiful. Especially the, the sweetheart. You can tell you're from the <laughs> South. Uh, Bless your uh, heart. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. <laughs> um, so the next question is, do you have a mantra in life or a mantra these days? I do. One of my favorite mantras is endings are only disappointments for those who have no faith in life or love. I'll say mm. it again. Endings are only disappointments for those who have no faith in life or love. Mm. Mm. I'm having to digest that one. Did, did did you create that? I wish. No, I and I can't find who said it. Hmm. So it's like an unknown. But wow. I'm like that is so, and it's hard because when things end, right? A relationship, a job, uh, you know, an opportunity that you're excited about, it's really easy to go into that dark place, right? Of oh, what's wrong with me? How did I screw up? But maybe, you know, it wasn't supposed to be. So that ending of this scenario was for the best. Mm -hmm. And when you have that faith in life and you have that faith in source and God and in love, which I think encapsulates all those things, then the next best thing, the next better thing is really right around the corner. Mm -hmm. Did you discover Uh, that mantra after your departure from the Imus show? um, After a breakup, a a very bad breakup Mm -hmm. before Imus. Mm -hmm. Seems like I I love that. I I actually like endings. I mean, I was talking to I was talking to a friend again this weekend, and he's gonna be he started a company which he sold, and now his time with the with the acquiring company is over in two weeks, and he's freaking out about what's uh next. And it's just like Jerry, the world the world is your oyster. Mm-hmm. Have faith. Have, have faith. Have faith. Have faith. Yeah. I'm gonna yeah. send them the. I'm gonna send them the line after yeah. after we're done. Here it is, Jerry. Nice. Uh, final question, Kareth. Um, what do you hope people will say about you at your wake? Oh wow. That she loved. That she loved completely. Mm-hmm. I really. I try to infuse that into everything that I do, and. My audiences feel that because I, it's very intentional because everybody deserves to be loved. Mm-hmm. Well, that would, uh, that would be sure. a win if I, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for, for sure. sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you uh, are precious. Bless your little heart. <laughs> <laughs> In the good 
way. You're not cussing me out. (laughs) You know that's an alternative for F you in the South, right? Oh no, is it really? Oh shit. There you go. I'll cut that right (laughs) now. Uh, you're not from the south it's okay you get you get uh, an exams northern part (laughs) yeah yeah but this has been uh delightful and uh so nice fast show and fast i told you i warned you about this shit hopefully it was fast for Karen. maybe it wasn't maybe it seemed like forever to her (laughs) really (laughs) 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 um but let's stay in touch uh keep up the good work because you're you're making a positive mark Oh, gentlemen, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad you reached out. Thank you for having me and giving me a platform to share what adversity is and what I do. And the goal is just to make the world a better place, right? Amen. Amen. Yes. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Thanks, Kara. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org. <laughs>